Making, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hey, this is Travis Nicholson. I'm a filmmaker and actor, uh, writer, musician, um, amateur cartoonist. <laughs> you might know me from uh, Still the King um, or uh, various uh, ridiculous national commercial campaigns, um, if you remember any of those. Uh, and I am currently working uh, in Nashville on an independent film project called East Side Story and Stan and Dan Save the Planet and in the midst of making a podcast called Set It Straight with Midland. Travis Nicholson, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thanks, Chris. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Anytime. It, it may not occur to the audience that the people we interview are people that we've never met before. In, in our lives. And the, the reality is that's oftentimes the case that the relationship, the friendship is starting at the point in which we are interviewing our guests. And the, the future of that relationship directly rides on whether or not that podcast interview went well or not. In this case, I'm happy to say that you are someone I've known for a while, uh -huh. whose family I've known for a while, and I'm excited just to know even more. And it might make for a, a more laid back and funny interview where we do have a, a lot more inside baseball uh, between us than normal interviews. So if that happens, I will do my best and fair warning to the audience, I will do my best to uh, uncover that inside baseball, explain some of those things if that does happen. And so I'd love to start with a little bit of that right now. Well, just to be clear, though, uh, our friendship is still on the line if yeah. this goes poorly. <laughs> so listeners, beware. This man is on trial. <laughs> Noted. Noted. And I, so I'm going to be on my no absolute A game. I've had so much caffeine. I, there's no Good. way for me to fail here. Uh, I would love, <laughs> I'd love to start here, Travis. Who is Elric Hahn? Oh, wow. Um, well, um, I, there's a man named Rick Hahn, and uh, he's, he's, he hails from Denver. <laughs> and um, he... Uh, he has a penchant for uh, songs involving um, Irish lore, in particular leprechauns. And, uh, you know, I've known him for years. Uh, he's a dear friend. And uh, when he comes to town, I, I'm always gone. Whenever he's in town, I always miss his show. So I feel bad. I've known him for a long time, but uh, a lot of my friends play in his band. And um, he... Uh, he made a web series here. There's a music video 
If anyone wants to see that, highly recommend going to YouTube and putting in um, uh, El Rican. That's E L R I C H. Uh, wait, no, I'm wrong. It's E L R I C K H A U N. Help from above. It's a music video um, starring Rick and Chris Crofton, and uh, it looks like it was made by eighth graders <laughs> <laughs> who who got into some weed gummies. Um, and we're still really proud of that video. And uh, yeah, so it's a rock band, uh, sort of like Tenacious D or Flight of the Concords. And um, yeah, we play once a year on St. Patrick's Day. And uh, and uh, we've been doing it for like 20 years. And the guys in the band are amazing. It's an incredible band with like, you know, Joshua Headley, who's an amazing recording artist on uh, New West Records and on Third Man. Uh, Corey Yance, who's one of the, the main members of uh, of uh, uh, Old Crow Medicine Show, Skylar Wilson, who's an amazing producer, um, and then just a rotating cast of just amazing musicians that want to come out and have a good time. And, um, it's just a really fun, creative fellowship that we've got we've we've gotten to have for you know so much. It's it's like a, the music is there's no pressure because we just enjoy making it and no one's going to be like, Oh man, I don't know about that leprechaun band. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it, there's no judgment. It's just fun. And, um, and to make people laugh and, uh, man, we've had a blast. And interestingly, also, uh, we made a web series about Rick first arriving in Nashville years ago. I mean, 15 years ago. And, uh, bunch of people helped. Wes helped me with it. Um, Chris Crofton also acted in that. We had a live uh, rooster on a leash. <laughs> we we uh, shot around Nashville for like, I think was, you know, like a week and everyone worked for free and it was just a blast. And then in the editing process, um, we lost the hard drive. It's probably me, but <laughs> somehow the hard drive was misplaced and we lost the footage for 15 years. And we just found it. Wow. Um, Wes was doing inventory on his hard drives and just doing some, uh, you know, house cleaning. And uh, he found this hard drive that said El Rican on it. It was like, it was like finding a pot of gold, man. Oh, <laughs> um, oh my and, goodness. Yeah. And uh, so we've been, we've been re-editing it. The, uh, and it's so fun to watch. I mean, Nashville looks so different. We shot downtown, you know, all of, all the stuff in there and everyone's younger, you know, it's just funny. And, um, we thought about uh, doing a reshoot like present day mm-hmm. to show, you know, sort of cap off the ending where, where's Rick now, you know, right. he's 15 years older and Chris Crofton is 15 years older. Um, so we're kind of in the process of opening up that can of worms and, uh, and uh, yeah, we're not sure what we're going to call it. Either Rick comes to Nashville or the super secret special personal pot of gold. Uh, which is a, a line in the song, which is just a just a, a window in how ridiculous that stuff is. The, the lyrics get progressively more contradictory and ridiculous, which is also why they're so brilliant in the song. How did you come up with the characterization of of Rick? Like how, how this almost feels like uh, a melding of like Bob Ross and Smithers. And or not Smithers, but Simpson's neighbor. Uh, oh, sure. Uh, uh, I'm forgetting what's his, his name. name. 
Yeah. Yeah. Ned. Ned. Uh, Ned. Ned yeah. Flanders. Yeah. Yeah. Him. Flanders. Yeah. And a few other, and, and maybe the guy who who does the progressive commercials where he's trying to prevent you from being like your parents, like that guy himself, all mixed into a, a person who can play guitar and sing. So <laughs> how, how did you how did you come up with this uh, persona and and this caricature for Rick Hahn? Well, I, I was we were talking about. I mean, a lot of my friends worked at the Bluebird Cafe uh, growing up. And, uh, also a lot of my friends, parents are songwriters. My dad's a, a songwriter, Gary Nicholson, uh, a fantastic, uh, songwriter and recording artist and, and musician. Um, and through that, seeing all these writers nights, you know, at the bluebird, um, there'd be people who would come in and, 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 you know, you see, you see incredible, amazing singer songwriters that just hold your attention with just a guitar and amazing stuff. And then, you know, then you see people that came in and were just, from anywhere in the Midwest or just, just, and this was their dream to play a song. And it was just wacky stuff. You know, people that didn't grow up in the industry would just <laughs> be listening to a song and then something would come out of left field and you go, Whoa, I wasn't expecting uh, that, you know, and God bless them. They just didn't really know how to write songs yet. And they're just trying it out. And, you know, it's kind of like going to an open mic comedy night or something. You're like, ah, that joke didn't land because it didn't make any sense, but right. uh, keep trying. Right. It, I think a lot of songwriters think the key to my success is going to be that I do something incredibly different. But I think you, and I think you do want to surprise people, but within the, the confines of, let's say the musical Overton window. Sure. Sure. Like, you know, know the rules so you can break them effectively exactly. <laughs> kind of thing. Exactly. And, so we, I thought it'd be funny if uh, we like staged this, like if a guy comes in and he just seems like one of those kind of off shucks, Midwestern kind of dudes. Just, well, it sure is great to see everybody. And I really appreciate you bending your ear for a minute and hearing one of my tunes, you know, one of those kind of real kind of earnest deliveries. And then, and then he goes into a song and it's, it seems like the song's about something normal. And then leprechauns happen in the song. <laughs> And that, you know, so everyone would just kind of be like, whoa, okay. Did he just start singing about leprechauns? Was that introduced? And, you know, we kind of imagine this writer's night where, you know, it's a writer's in the round thing. So he finishes his song. The next songwriter has his song and then get back around to Rick again. And he's playing a song. And this one seems to be about something. Okay, well, this is a normal song. And then, nope, leprechauns again. And the song, they arrived, you know, second chorus. There it is. And we thought, what a funny prank that would be to just mess with people. And uh, so that's where it came from. And uh, we just thought it was funny. And me and my friend Jesse Parker wrote the first couple things, um, Help From Above. And we were just cracking each other up, man. We were just laughing so hard about just this sort of overly polite kind of earnest delivery, but with the most ridiculous lyrics. And, um, and the idea that a person would have some neurosis where every song ends up somehow being about leprechauns, you know. And uh, we stretch those parameters and, you know, we get into sort of more like sort of, you know, medieval kind of dorkiness, you know, kind of Renaissance fair kind of sounding stuff here and there where it's like saving a princess from a dragon's cave and all this stuff. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but that's all told the storyteller who's relaying the story is a leprechaun. You know, as I peer into my pot of gold, I saw an ancient tale unfold present in time, like a window in my mind. So it's the, it's the leprechaun telling the story. So we kind of, that's, that's, we have certain caveats we allow, 
but uh man it's just plain fun i love it um i love working with these people and there's no no pressure to uh be cool or interesting beyond just what's making us laugh and having fun and the music's really good because the people that make it with me are all amazing accomplished musicians and they really put their heart into it and it's a blast yeah, I'm not sure I've heard a much cleaner voice than Joshua Headley. He, when he Man. sings, it's so pure. It's like there's must have drank ten cups of throat coat before his studio session. It's super duper clear. You mentioned being the son of Gary Nicholson, the Grammy Award winning songwriter and singer, and it's kind of synonymous with you. I know that probably carries its own weight and we can talk about that at some time, but uh, at some time in this conversation, the other side of that though, is that you grew up with this elite group of country musicians in, in, in the sort of elite circles of songwriting in Nashville in the eighties in 90s, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Garth Brooks, George Strait, B.B. King, Ringo Starr, et cetera. Can you tell us what a common thread is that you may have noticed between all those guys that, I don't know, maybe could be advice to this audience perhaps, but maybe not if you don't want to go that route, but a common thread in all of them that you may have noticed even at that young age that stood out and said, oh, that's why they're successful. Hmm. Uh, well, among those people you mentioned, um, yeah, I would say they're all um, so innately who they are. I mean, you know, uh, all those people, uh, they sang in their own style. They wrote in their own style. They really didn't compromise their vision in their careers and consistently. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, there's no stronger brand than that in my mind than being truly who you are as a person and really not, not bending to some kind of strategy or industry outcome or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, you're just doing what you do and doing it the best you know how. I mean, you know, it's pretty, pretty hard to mistake a, uh, bb king guitar solo and also pretty hard to mistake a willie nelson guitar solo and they're about as opposite as they can be um right you know and and uh and then my my dad getting to work with all those people was um i'd say the same for him you know there's a really cool thing that he does in his songwriting that i've always admired so much is that um there's always a a hidden message in the turn of a phrase, he's a really spiritual guy. He's, uh, he's, um, meditates. He's, you know, uh, there has much deeper inner life than a lot of people realize. And he, he sneaks that into his songs. There's always an extra little layer kind of vibrating there. And, uh, that's where I think he attracts these people that, you know, have such pure voices, um, um, artistically, I think he really, uh, they gravitate towards that. They, they feel that from him and they want there to be a deeper layer and not just some kind of surface lyrical thing, you know? And uh, I really think there's like a, it's like a vibratory thing, you know, truth attracts truth, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, 
I mean, he's had the most incredible experiences, um, not just by being so prolific. I mean, I think he's one of the most recorded songwriters because um, he's just, you know, he has that blue collar energy to his songwriting. But right. add to that a deeper spiritual kind of approach, you know. Um, and I think that that's a, a, a really amazing combination. And uh, yeah, so I think these people, those people all had a very deep inner life um, or at least um, were uncompromising as who they were as artists, you know. Yeah, I've seen your dad in a large handful of writers in the round. Um, yeah, cool. Yeah, wow. Yeah, mostly mostly from the blues cruise he would attend with Delbert, Delbert McClinton every year. Yeah, yeah. And I would be on that boat and get to see him basically play every single night. And he's at Great home. Time. Yeah, he's at home. And it's it's a home away from home when he's in that circle. It looks like he's the most comfortable person there, even if maybe that isn't the case. But I think that speaks very much to what you were just saying there. Uh, is, is there a favorite childhood story that you could share with us growing up? I, I did so many crazy things, you know, growing up in, in neighborhoods in, in Nashville. And, um, you know, we used to jump the train. We almost drowned in a cave one time. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we got into some shenanigans growing up in, in, a, in a very idyllic way. I'm so grateful for growing up at the time I grew up and in the neighborhood I grew up in and on a dead end street. And we all could run wild in the neighborhood and our moms would call us in for, for, you know, for dinner. And it's a very Norman Rockwell-esque kind of, uh, thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And a lot of those friends I had as children, I still have great friendships with, or they're basically family, you know, um, uh, and they're all, you know, a lot of them were songwriters' kids. And my mom is also this, um, she's an author. She's a, a, a childcare advocate. She has an organization called Attachment Parenting International. Yep. And she's written books and curriculums and has support groups all around the world. And uh, she's just an incredible woman. And, uh, and so it was her circle of moms and families that she had was in support groups with and, and, uh, you know, and then her best friend, Lisa Parker, who co-created, uh, co-founded Attachment Parenting International, API.org, I believe, API.com, API, yeah. And, um, and her son, Jesse, and I grew up together and we're still great friends. And then, you know, my dad's songwriter buddies, Dustin Welch, uh, Skylar Wilson, uh, Corey Yance, all these people that I've known since I was a kid are all uh, still in my life and, and, and that I played with and hung out with when I was a kid. So that's really cool. Um, I'm, I feel really grateful for that and lucky. And man, it's a particular story. Uh, I don't, I don't know. Let me think for a second. Um, we can come back to it if you want, but you know, were there any stories that jump out to you that pertain to maybe your interest in film? Because I think there was a lot of, I'm sure there was a lot of thought to, and maybe even perhaps pressure to play guitar and be a songwriter and follow in the business of what your father was doing, or even perhaps your mom, Barbara, like maybe be an author, but at some point film just jumped out to you. Is there a story that connects you to that? 
Uh, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, you know, I think really in some ways, my brothers and I talk about this sometimes because my dad knew how hard it was to make it in this business and how hard, like, you know, being a touring musician is and just how challenging it is and how much effort it takes to, to make it happen. And I mean, that's a whole other can of worms now because publishing just doesn't pay, you know, songwriting doesn't pay like it used to because of streaming. It's just not really a, a great vehicle to make, make money. It's hard to be a working songwriter, but you know, they're not handing out publishing deals to people where you get an advance and, you know, but uh, yeah, so he was, he was pretty like, uh, he was supportive of all of us. You know, I have three brothers there and uh, we all kind of have followed creative paths in various ways. And so he's always for, but he never like, he's never like, uh, you know, you better practice that guitar and we're going to do this. <laughs> it, it, it was, it was really like he would play for us, show us stuff, you know, all my early uh, guitar, um, you know, knowledge came from my dad and then I took guitar lessons too here and there um but he's just a maniac on the guitar he's so good that it's just like okay like you watch him play and you're like this is a foreign language still at 42 years old I mean he's just he has an ability that um I don't think I'll ever achieve on guitar and I I'm and I'm okay with that <laughs> I'm just like <laughs> yeah, I've, um but there was um a time period where I was a kid. I was like in third grade and, uh, I was always in, into art. I was always into painting and drawing and, and, and that kind of medium. I, I, I was really, really, uh, interested in that. And that's kind of what I thought I would be doing. But, um, but even as a kid, as a little kid, I had an interest in filmmaking and just loved movies and wanted to know what that was about, but we didn't have access to a camera. You know, we, we, uh, there, there, you know, not a lot of people had home video cameras as much. Um, but, uh, we had a tape recorder. And so me and my buddy, uh, Andrew Rosario, um, were together a lot uh, after school. Um, and we just were just, uh, had to make our own fun. You know, we, we didn't, we kind of got pulled away from the TV as much as they could, you know, you can only watch the Rocketeer so many times. Um, and we'd made like marble mazes and stuff. But one thing we started doing was recording on this tape recorder and making a, we kind of realized there's like three elements to anything you want to do, like, you know, radio play, do a skit, a sketch or a skit or whatever. And so it's like, you know, you have people talking, you got dialogue, you got music and you have sound effects. And with those three things, um, you could do a, some pretty funny stuff. So, you know, we would get like 100 greatest, you know, uh, um, the 100 greatest, uh, orchestral performances CD, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. and it'd be like just classical music. Um, and then a sound effects CD and we'd have like, you know, two tape recorders or we'd have a tape recorder going and then we'd have like two CD players and we would cue sound effects and record audio and we'd make fake commercials and stuff, you know, like, are you having trouble sleeping? And there'd be, you know, classical music and then there'd be, you know, lewd sound effects, whatever. And we just made stuff all the time. And then, uh, and we'd play them for our friends. We had, you know, full on like little radio plays, different characters that would return. You could do a new episode about these characters. And, um, 
we just really enjoyed it just for our own amusement. And then Andrew's grandmother lent us her VHS camera. And man, that just changed everything. You know, we had that sort of basis already just doing audio stuff. And then we had that camera. We we're like, holy crap. I mean, it was just so cool. We were just like, man. Um, right, right. And, uh, you know, we just tried everything we could possibly think of. Forced perspective, turning the camera on its side, magic shows, you know, stopping and moving objects and starting it again, um, tying the camera onto stuff and just, you know, anything we could think of that would be fun. And so that's kind of where we started, you know, doing stuff. And then, uh, um, and then we just started getting better cameras, you know, whenever we get a hold of a better camera, my parents got me a great camera, finally got me like a, you know, mini DV camera camcorder. Um, and, uh, man, we just made stuff all the time. Just that's what we did for fun for a long time, you know, before there was beer and parties, uh, you know, and, and, and well after that too. Um, there was a moment where you had the band, the swindlers, but decided to leave to go to Watkins film school. So there has been this sort of tug of war in your creative heart for at least up to that point, how hard sure. was it to say goodbye to the swindlers to go, to go to film school? Well, you know, we were playing and, um, and that band was, it was so cool because, uh, my friend Dustin Welch had a, uh, like a building back behind his, uh, his, his mom's house. That was like a, a it, was, it had been a, a studio. This guy, Mike Henderson, Mm-hmm. lived there before amazing guitar player uh singer um um mike henderson had it and so when they bought that house from mike they had this like studio so that became his bedroom back there and it was like just a totally private separate hangout you know and so we just were out there playing music all the time and uh recording and making little movies and um no bathroom but uh you know <laughs> he had a fridge and you know it was it was great a piano and like um so that's where the Swindlers formed. It was me, Corey Yance, Dustin Welch. Um, and then quickly other people started joining. Um, and uh, the whole angle was the reason why we called ourselves the Swindlers was because we were taking all these old songs, like really old American old timey songs. And a lot of them we'd never heard recorded before. We'd heard, you know, really weird old versions or, you know, Woody Guthrie stuff that had never been recorded. Um, you know, song fragments that we'd kind of make our own. And uh, we'd work them up on traditional instruments, you know, like banjos and mandolins and guitars and upright bass. And um, we started busking. You know, we started performing um, on street corners around downtown and stuff. And going out to these kind of like little bluegrass, um, you know, guitar pulls and shindigs, like in kind of rural counties of Tennessee and you just see amazing stuff. These people just as, as hobbyists were just crazy good flat pickers and banjo players and fiddlers. And, you know, I remember we walked into one, one of those things and there's this woman and she's breastfeeding her baby on stage while she's playing upright bass. And we're like, this is the real deal right here. Um, and, uh, and, uh, that's where we kind of just, we just had a respect for that stuff. We just thought it was cool. We thought this is our little angle, you know, this is our, we're kind of just, making something old new again. Um, but in a respectful way, you know, we weren't, we weren't, uh, 
adding, uh, you know, break beats to it or anything, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, then in that process, uh, Justin Earl, Justin Towns Earl joined the band, Steve Earl's son. And, uh, he had all these songs that just really melded well with that old material we were doing. And that just took everything to a new level. Um, and, uh, we started just playing gigs with him and, uh, and that was, just great. I mean, I think he, he was such a prolific, brilliant songwriter yeah. and a lot of his work, um, I think just kind of, you know, we loved it, but it like it, only really now I do, I see how profound a lot of it was because, you know, you just listen to it. There's just nothing wrong with it. It just sounds like any old song that you would have, that we were already doing, you know, the placement was so clean and true to the, to the genre. And, um, and uh, just it was he was just naturally that way, and his, his voice and guitar playing was so great and clean and and uh, and honest, you know. And, and um, we actually unearthed uh, a bunch of recordings Dustin had made with Justin Earls on there. I mean, he, his songs. I think it's like twenty-two songs mm -hmm. that they just recorded on a reel-to-reel -reel tape machine that I dug out of my my dad's basement that we had to kind of cobble back together, and then. Um, recorded all this stuff and uh chris scruggs is on there um fats kaplan like just kind of whoever we get to come over and play a part we needed and um it's just so good man it sounds so great um i was just sort of cheering them on nobody's asked me to do any guitar solos um uh maybe an elric Hunt, but uh <laughs> uh you know we had these you know there's just such a wealth of talent around us so we we pulled from that sort of cherry picked who we could get to come in and play and then, um, and they're actually going to hopefully release that. I was going to uh, say, what are they going to do with that? I mean, it, it's, yeah, I think it's like it his best be, record, man. Honestly, be, I think it I would think be huge. It's so good. It's so cool. And, uh, you know, obviously I have a lot of nostalgia for it and a lot of sentimental, uh, value to that because of Justin passing away. Um, right, right. but, uh, on top of it, it's like, I think it's just awesome. It's like, cause he was so young and, and the, and no one was showing off. We were just doing the best we could, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was like, you know, the, you know, the mandolin solo wasn't overcomplicated or showy or distracting because it was just the best that we could do at the time, you know, like mm -hmm. not too many notes, not anything, just, just clean and, and pretty and, and listenable. And we're not overdoing it by fancying things up. Um, it's just really clean. It sounded like an old timey record uh, in, in, in all the good ways. And then, um, some point, uh, we were kind of in, in the, at the time when I sort of split ways was Justin and all of us were, uh, were recording with Steve Earl. It was, he, he recorded an EP with us and it was sort of to help groom us to get a record deal with lost highway at the time. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of headed that direction. And we recorded this really cool EP with Steve Earl and, um, and Ray Kennedy. And, uh, it was like, okay, this is like starting to be real. And we, and we did a couple little tours, you know, I went like, we toured through Texas a couple times. And so I'm, I'm the guitar player on the road. And I'd always had amb ambitions about, you know, being a filmmaker. And I had through this process also been in and out of film school at Watkins. And I was still playing with them at the time and kind of trading back and forth and going on these old tours and stuff. And it just occurred to me, like, I wasn't going to be able to do everything, you know, like to be a filmmaker and be a touring guitar player. And 
I have so many friends that do that. And I have so much respect for them because, you know, it is 99% travel, you know, mm-hmm. and it's so uncomfortable for so long. You really have to know that's what you're supposed to do. You know, that's your calling <clears throat> is to be a musician and to play, especially when you're a musician in someone else's band supporting their songs and their music, which is what I would be doing mostly. And, uh, and gladly, uh, would have been an honor to continue like that. Um, and then layered into that whole thing too, was that, um, Justin had a lot of struggles with substance abuse and, um, really at a level that none of us other guys in the band were experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, you know, really hard, uh, intervention style things that happened. Um, really just trying them to, to get him to come around and, uh, God love him, man. He just really had a hard time, uh, keeping on the straight and narrow. And, uh, he was a passionate guy and, uh, in all, in all fronts. And, uh, you know, it eventually took his life. But, um, back in those days we're kids, you know, we're like 18, 19 years old. And, you know, I wasn't, uh, into the heavy stuff, you know, and he just, he had slipped over to the wrong side of the tracks a few too many times. And so some of that came into play too. And, and was a distraction. Um, and I just knew that I couldn't cut it and that, that I, that I wouldn't be a, a value as much as somebody else who their true calling was to be a guitar player and be on tour. So there wasn't like a big, like guys, I'm leaving the band and sorry. And this is it. You know, it never was that it was uh, Justin would have welcomed me back anytime. And, um, I love that about him. That guy never made me feel, um, like I didn't belong, even though, um, I knew my technical ability, you know, uh, that I hope I made up, made up for it with enthusiasm, uh, could have been replaced (laughs) anytime. And, uh, he never made me feel that way or gave me a sideways glance. And I always felt like I was, um, right there in the pack with everybody. And, uh, and I'll always be grateful to him for that, but I had to move on. You know, I moved to LA when I was 24 and, uh, you know, that was, uh, just kind of not too, not too long after dropping out of film school. So oh, I didn't I, realize you didn't finish film school. You, you decided to drop out. Yeah. I, uh, had a crazy experience. So I was in, in, I was at Watkins. I was in the writing and directing program and I was two years in made some short films, you know, was plugging along, made some friends there, um, collaborating with other people. And, and I get put in stuff too, a little bit as an actor, but I never, took that seriously. I always thought that was just sort of funny, you know, it was always sort of silly stuff. Um, and then, uh, I heard they were making a movie down in, uh, Jackson, Mississippi and the Coen brothers were, mm-hmm. and I was, that was the first, uh, filmmakers that I understood kind of how strong tone can play a part in, you know, the film language of a, a person's career. And, and, and I just, you know, I, I, when I was younger, I'd like, I'd seen raising Arizona, and then I saw Hudsuck for Proxy in high school and was like, wait a second, there's something about this movie that seems like Raising Arizona. And, that, you know, it was Coen Brothers and I was just hooked and it was, that was it. And I watched everything I get a hold of and just, you know, stacked it up at Blockbuster, you know. And, um, and so when I heard in film school, I was already obsessed with them and uh, heard they were making a movie in Mississippi, which was just a total fluke. I was, I was, I like dropped a book. It's like out of a movie, like dropped a book and had to like dig it out from the below. And I was late getting out of class and 
one student was there talking to my teacher, um, and I heard her say, um, yeah, it's a Coen Brothers movie. They're shooting, in, in, and I was like, you know, like my antenna went up, and I went over, like, excuse me. <laughs> you said the Coen Brothers are making a movie in Mississippi? And, and this girl was like, yeah, uh, Carrie has a job on it. She's going to be an extras wardrobe assistant splitting a paycheck with another girl who's also going to be an extra wardrobe assistant and they're going to head down there. And I was like, well, is there any other, you know, jobs available on the set? And well, I don't know, maybe I could send in a resume. I'm like, well, great. So I, I mean, I don't know what my resume had on. I'd done nothing. I, you know, made a few music videos for friends or something. So I type up, a, I'd be hilarious to see what that looks like today. Um, but I has typed up a resume, sent it into the production office in Mississippi and crickets. Um, you know, I bugged my teacher to ask them and she came back and said, you know, they don't, they don't need anybody else. You know, they don't need any PAs or anything like that. So I, I made another resume and made it look a little fancier and got some help and sent that one in. Same result. So I just begged this girl in my class who I didn't really know, uh, Carrie, and then this girl, April, um, we're going to ride down there together. And I just said, can I just ride down there with you guys? Um, and just see, just see if I can see the set, see what I can see. And I'll just take yeah. a Greyhound back. And they said, sure. And uh, this other guy, uh, Blake McClure, who is a great DP uh, and, and friend who I've known forever. I met him on that trip. We, he rode down there too. His, uh, he was friends with April. Uh, he was actually engaged to April's sister at the time. Um, mm -hmm. So we go down there and they sneak us into the cast and crew welcoming party um <laughs> as their dates you know they're plus ones um and i i'm just like gobsmacked you know there's there's jill cohen over there oh my god you know i'm not gonna try to talk to him holy crap and there's uh francis mcdormand and there's uh holly hunter and you know these people are just there and um there's roger deakins you know and wow. i was going i was going how do i get on the set you know what can i do to figure out a way and uh as luck would have it, this really great lady with a super strong uh, Louisiana accent, uh, uh, Nancy James, she's like, well, Travis, you can, I heard you want to work on the movie. Come on down. You know, you can work with me, honey. And I said, well, wow, what do you do? She's like, well, I'm craft service. So I got a job on Oh Brother, Where Art Thou as the craft service intern. And it was the greatest summer of my life not being paid to work on a Coen Brothers movie. And uh, I had so What does fun. a craft service intern do that isn't well, already handled by the craft service, <laughs> the crafty right. person? Right. Uh, I just, it was 100 degrees, 100% humidity, lots of extras on that movie wearing hot period clothing. And so I had to like hustle water, Gatorades around oh, from, it. you know, from like crew to crew. Um, what was great is I had sort of autonomy for that reason. I was just shipping water around as much as I could, you know, like, and on a golf cart, you know, and then, you know, helping set up, um, uh, craft service tables and then, you know, tearing them down, moving locations, you know, we're just darting all across the countryside shooting this movie. So a lot of that, um, stuff. Um, but one other amazing thing was I was bringing the Coen brothers their coffee in the morning and Nancy James, I can't say enough about how great she was to me. You know, she slipped me a hundred bucks every now and then. And she all, I always had food to take home to the uh, extended stay. We were all crammed into them sleeping on a couch, right? you know, and, uh, 
And um, she had me bring in the Coen brothers their coffee in the morning. So, you know, I roll up there and there's Ethan doing the New York Times crossword puzzle and he wanted his uh, Pete's coffee, you know, and then, uh, you know, Roger Deakins wanted his tea, an Englishman, a certain way, you know, in the morning. And, and I just figured out what they wanted and uh, was just friendly. And um, Frances McDormand was hanging out on the set and she had a, her son, Pedro, was three at the time. And uh, I've been around with kids a lot growing up, babysat a lot. My mom, you know, being a child care advocate and, and uh, there's a lot of kids around. So I knew how to talk to kids mm. and knew not to talk to kids like they were puppies, <laughs> you know, yeah. knew to kind of like you show a child who's three years old some respect and you'd be like, hey, how you doing? I'm Travis. Nice to meet you, you know, and not like, oh, hey, little buddy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh I think it just, the kid wasn't used to that. And it just, and he just like looked up at me like, Whoa, you're my friend, you know? And so he'd follow me around. I wore a cowboy hat all summer too. People called me Tex on set all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think he, maybe he thought I was a cowboy. That's what I'm hoping was the case. Hoping yeah. I pulled that off at 19. And so I started kind of Fran, Francis McDormand would be like, Hey, do you want to babysit the kid? And I was like, sure. Yes. I would love to sit in George and <laughs> in, in, in Joel Cohen's, trailer eating Pringles watching a bug's life with this three-year-old while not being in 100 degree heat um hauling water around for an hour and a half after lunch you know and she'd throw me 20 bucks or something so she could go take a walk with Joel or whatever and um so we started this friendship me, me and Fran and um she uh you know after that summer she brought me on the next movie as her assistant and driver and she knew I could I could take care of Pedro and um uh yeah, jump, you know, jumping ahead. I was you know, 20 years old then, and I'm in LA all of a sudden, uh, driving Francis McDormand to work using a, a Thomas guide to get around. Um, Unbelievable. And just, and there's a million a, stories about that. Uh, about what a working with her. What a connection. Oh, man. Between the time in which you were sort of learning either directly or by proxy from your mom about childcare you probably couldn't have imagined how that would pay off for you so early without having to have children yourself. Oh man. Uh, yeah. What a, what a, I have never, I have never thought of it that way, but yeah, that absolutely was uh, a skill set that I did not see paying off in this industry, you know, but, uh, <laughs> no, it's just so, it's so funny how the universe works. It's almost as if, uh, your name was already written on the blackboard. Someone just needed to write it in chalk so that, it could be seen. Um, is that why you're credited as, as Pedro Cohen, by the way? Yeah. Assistant to Pedro Cohen on, uh, <laughs> the man who wasn't there. That was their little gag because, uh, you know, you, you know, what would happen was, you know, I, I would, you know, God, I'll never forget the first day I picked up Fran. Um, she's out in like, she's out in, uh, Santa Monica. And I was, <laughs> I was sleeping on the floor behind a couch at this guy's house, this apartment over at like, uh, it was like La Brea and Melrose and behind, like across the street from Pink's hot dog stand in LA for anyone who's familiar with that area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was, I'd met this guy as a tour manager for this like rock band that I knew in Nashville. And who's this, this absolutely insane guy. Um, but really nice to me. 
Um, he had a reputation for knocking people out a lot on, on tour. And uh, he was like a club promoter in LA, which means maybe he sold cocaine. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> he'd be out till four in the morning pretty consistently. Um, and I'd be getting up around the time he'd be getting home. But I'd sleep on the couch behind his, uh, sleep on the floor behind his couch in his sleeping bag. And I had two friends out there, Andrew Rosario and Jesse Parker. They were kind of just milling about in LA. And I got them a couple jobs on set here and there, extras and stuff like that. But they had other stuff there they were working on. And uh, so we all kind of like shacked up there. So I get up to late, 4.30 in the morning or something. Drive out to Santa Monica, pick up Fran. First day I picked her up, uh, I like put on like a polo shirt, trying to kind of look like professional, like a driver kind of guy, you know? <laughs> and uh, she's sitting on the front stoop you know, just waiting for me. And, uh, and she's like, what are you doing with this shirt? Come on. You don't, don't do that trap. You don't have to do that. You know? And I was just like, I'm trying to look nice. You know? And she's like, no, 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 none of that. Cut it out. Let's go get some coffee, go to work, you know? And, um, and that was our relationship. She just was my friend and really, um, never asked me, she, she would always tell me like, you know, I was on call all the time. She's like, I'm not going to call you for the next four days. Go have fun with your friends, do whatever you want, take the car, you know, whatever. Um, when I turned 21, she found out it was my birthday. I didn't want people on set to know because they'd make a big deal out of it, heckle me. So I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> and she found out somehow. Um, and she goes, what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing t- uh, tomorrow? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Why do, why do you ask? Well, it's your birthday, you know. And um, she got me a car. She rented me a car, uh, like a nice, like, you know, SUV limo thingy. Nice. And uh She's like, I tell you what you're going to do. Car's going to come to your house, pick you up at 7.30 and take you and your friends wherever you want to go. You know, do not drink and drive, Travis. I was getting the lecture from Almost Famous from Francis McDormand. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, yeah. And so on my 21st birthday, I'm riding around with my friends in, in, in L.A. and going to, going to dinner and getting legal drinks for the first time and, uh, and all because of her. And um, she's just a wonderful, wonderful lady. That's a what a, what a story. What a crazy uh, time, man. I was, you know, God, it's crazy to think that was 21 years ago. Um, the way you tell it, it sounds like it was yesterday. Uh, there, there are a lot of people around the world that listen to this podcast that are mulling over the decision to either produce where they are or to move to Los Angeles and be, and be part of the industry. And there's there seems to be a bias against someone who wants to that on one hand says they want to do this more than anything, but on the other hand, isn't willing to take the risk to move to where the industry is or lives. I didn't know what your opinion on that was. And, and if you had any memory of what the advantages were and disadvantages were when you moved out to LA. Well, you know, I think a lot of that bias probably comes from people um, that moved to LA and did it because, um, I think a common experience is just, it's brutal. Like it's just a hard place to go. I left this sort of shire of Nashville <laughs> with all these friends and family people like growing up with my whole life and nobody else moved out there, you know? Um, and, uh, I had a girlfriend at the time we went together but that immediately fell apart <laughs> when I got there, uh, you know, after moving in together and all that. And so that was a heartbreaking time because I felt all the more alone but I stuck it out and it was hard and I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I was, you know, I was 24 and I didn't have really any real credits to speak of or, or know how to, 
market myself as a director. And that's really what I wanted to do was, was somehow figure out a way to get in somewhere. And I had nothing, I had no prospects. I mean, I knew, you know, some people, um, you know, obviously from working on the Coen brothers movies and stuff, um, that were very kind to me, but they were all sort of so far ahead, you know, mm -hmm. uh, no one's gonna be like, yeah, why don't you come direct my next movie? You know, it's not going to happen. So, and I also knew that being on the PA track, um, was going to lead to a career as an AD. Right. And that's about, that's the end of the line on that. And I didn't want to be an assistant director. So, you know, the advice was basically like, you need to jump in and just start directing some stuff. And, you know, I'd made short films and I'd, um, I'd had a job at a production company in Nashville before I moved to LA, um, with this woman, Tamara Brooks gave me a shot and gave me an office. And, um, she'd seen a short film that me and Blake McClure had made called high noon at midnight that played some festivals. And that got me some attention. And, um, got me a job at a production company. Um, so I'd done comm some commercials and uh, directed, but it just was not, it was just small fries, you know, it just didn't matter. And so I just couldn't get arrested um, out there. And um, mm -hmm. so I was just, and I didn't, I, I was so broke. I just didn't, I didn't have a, you know, enough money to get a ticket and fly home and give up, you know? And a friend <laughs> uh, took me to dinner and he said, well, hey, um, uh how good of an actor are you? And I'm like, ah, no, I don't know. I mean, I like to goof off. And he'd seen me in a, I'd gotten cast as sort of this fluke in a Volkswagen commercial that, uh, um, my friend Kim Petrosky is a casting director. And, um, she, I used to do this bit. She had an office near mine and I'd jump in her office and I'd be like, listen up, there's 80 pounds of play sand that I delivered in the parking lot here in summer and these damn pay for it. And you know, <laughs> And the ticket says your office, you know? And so I'll just, I would harass her like this weird redneck <laughs> delivery guy. And I would do it to her and she'd be like, get out of here. I'm busy, you know? And, um, but then this commercial came up, they needed a Southern guy, really Southern guy. And they were casting all across the U S I didn't know this at the time, but they're casting like accents across the U S and she said, she came in and she had her camera and she goes, Hey, I want you to read something. And so uh, she's like, just do your redneck thing. Do the, do the, the annoying thing I hate that may become useful actually now. So I like held my name tag upside down and you know, hey, my name's Travis. I sure would be tickled to be in the commercial with y'all, you know, just really just yucking it up, being stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I got the role. And it was uh Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris were directing it, who did a little Miss Sunshine. Yep. And um and uh they thought I was just some hillbilly. And they flew me to LA first class for some of on a first class flight. <laughs> I'm just giggling. Everybody in first class is getting a kick out of me. Just like they'd bring me like, you know, an ice cream sundae and I'd just giggle, you know. And then everybody else would giggle, you know. And I, <laughs> I was just I was like, wow, you know, and uh, you know, and I was maybe 22 or something. And they put me at the standard on sunset, and somebody had a my name on a card at the airport, and I get to set and uh I meet Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, and they're both wearing cowboy hats. And my line in the, in the commercial is, um, people here and there wearing genuine cowboy hats. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and I, I introduced myself. Hey, how you guys doing? Nice to meet you. Thanks for, thanks for having me out. And they're like, whoa, you don't have much of an accent in person, do you? And I was like, well, I can certainly put it on if I need to. And they just both started laughing because they thought I was... Because even, you know, you do a slate when you do an audition, and you say, you know, you do your, your bit, and then you say your, your name as yourself, but I was just goofing off trying to make Kim laugh. So 
I was going, boy, howdy. I sure would like to be in a commercial. That'd be something. What a trip, you know, just being the character. Um, so anyway, I digress at dinner with my friend, Aaron in LA. And, uh, he goes, well, you did that one commercial. And I'm like, yeah, but that was a fluke. You know, he goes, tell you what, I want you to meet some friends of mine. He'd been, been in, in, in commercial casting himself. And he knew some people at a agency called dragon talent. And, uh, he said, why don't you go meet them and, uh, see what, uh, see what they say. So I, uh, I had a guy take a picture of me. <laughs> I remember it was on slide film for some reason. And I looked depressed in it and my hair's a mess and my shirt's inside out, but I went and got prints of it made. And I went to this agency and met, uh, this man named Haim Magnum. Didn't make that up. What a name. And, uh, <laughs> Robin Harrington. I remember Haim had, uh, a uh, on his desk, he had one hard hard boiled egg cut four times, and four pieces of cheddar cheese about the same size, all lined up in a row in front of him. And uh, he's really <laughs> really nice guy. I meet him, we shake. He looks at my headshot. He goes, "I guess this will work for now." Um, and uh, I'm like, "Okay, cool." So they signed me up. And uh, oh, also they're in this like. They were in Beverly Hills in this old theater, like this rundown theater building. And he had to go in this side door and get in a freight elevator that was only big enough for like one person. <laughs> and that thing just like creaked and moaned as it went up. And you're like, oh my God, I'm going to die here. And then you get off this elevator, the top floor, like this sort of weird penthouse hallway. And there's a door open with like, you know, like new age music coming out of it. Mm -hmm. I was like, I guess I walk in there. And that's kind of how I found them. Very mysterious. Anyway, they give me a job. They give me a, a chance. They send me an audition. My first audition in LA two weeks later. And it's for Milwaukee's best light beer. Mm. And uh, I, I, I get the role. I get my first audition. I, I land the part. And uh, that campaign went on for three years. We do two or three commercials every several months. It was non-union, but it was enough to pay my bills and um, keep me afloat. And it was just a total godsend that uh, that came at that time because I really don't know that I would have been able to hack it much longer. And that just made another cha change. You know, I thought, well, gosh, especially back then, you, you book a commercial and you make a chunk of change, you know? Right. And um, I quickly had to join the union. I was doing, you know, all the weird quirky <laughs> commercials like Skittles and Comcast and, um, you know, um, other, you know, McDonald's and, um, and I just kind of took it all for granted how hard, um, how lucky I was. And I think that's part of why I booked was because I didn't really understand that the, you know, the 15 minutes that I was in a casting office was happening back to back all day long, looking at, you know, weird dudes with curly hair like me for whatever role, you know, like right. the, the, the odds were, were not in my favor. And, um, but I'd book a job and I'd just go home to Nashville for a few weeks and get drunk with my friends and catch up with everybody and just fly back and just book another commercial. I thought that's, that's what, that's what you do. <laughs> so that you know? was the whole life. Right. And, uh, and, um, I look back now and just go, Oh my God, that's just absolutely crazy that I thought that's how it could work. Um, and I, I think that my my naivety helped in that uh, regard because I was just still kind of starry eyed, just like 
not realizing um, how preposterous it was to count on commercials to make a living, you know. You were um, fresh-faced and, and loose. Oh, man, yeah. Did and you, also, I, I didn't realize how annoying it would be <laughs> was to my, to my agency. They'd be like, cool, I booked one, I'd, and I'd split town, you know. And uh, they'd be like, you can't keep doing, like, oh, no, I'll be back, you know. And because uh, you, you fall out of rotation because they, they can't let you audition for something if you're going to leave town or if there's a threat of that. So I think in that regard, it helped, too, because I, I would take myself out of rotation. Mm. And I'd come back and it wasn't like, oh, there's that guy again. We see him every week. Yeah, you, you truly are a multi-hyphenate kind of guy. You've acted in so many things, but you're also a producer, a musician, an artist, a director. And I just wasn't sure. Have you ever had any specific like acting training or, or do you employ any type of acting technique? If I have this right, I believe you do something like 12 different accents. <laughs> <laughs> like how did you develop those? Uh, if you didn't do training, if you do have some sort of training or technique, please let, let us know and illuminate us. Oh man. I probably said I do 12 accents on some site somewhere and I probably do, um, do three poorly, but, uh, um, <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I, uh, you know, when I first went to LA, I, that was not a goal of mine. I didn't really think that was even a, a possibility for me, uh, to, to have a career as an actor. And, um, I'm still amazed that that happens, um, sometimes, but, uh, um, I went to my, my friend, uh, a producer, a guy named Michael Murphy, who's awesome. He produced Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. He was a big encourager. Uh, he gave me a lot of encouragement to move to Los Angeles too. When I was younger, he saw my short film that, that, that uh, got me my, my job. Um, and he took it to some producers in LA and, um, just was a, 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 a champion of mine early on. And, um, he produced a documentary. I got to direct about Samurai. It was animated. <laughs> it was super fun. Um, Soul of the Samurai. Oh yeah, that looks so cool. That's called uh, yeah, Soul of the Samurai. Yeah. It's animated, it's a documentary, and you can watch, I believe, a small bit of it on your website at littlebrotherfilms.com. Yeah, L yeah, film. Yeah, littlebrotherfilms.com. Uh, and at the end, we'll we'll find out where you can watch the whole thing. But that thing looked amazing. Yeah, it was fun, man. It was cool, it was, and he gave me that opportunity when I, at a young age um, before I went to LA. Um, uh, and, and, uh, he had a acting studio called Howard Fine acting studio. And I went there and it was really expensive, but I was making decent money on um, commercials and, um, and, uh, intense. Like if your cell phone went off, they fined you $200 oh, and wow. you had to leave class. And, uh, so really strict that way that very, uh, very serious, um, um, and it was uh, uh, Uta Hagen technique, but there was like, you know, uh, Stanislavski and Meisner and um, other stuff folded in there. Um, but the main thing was that there's a lot, they did a lot of background on character and you were supposed to embody the character using elements from your, your own life and sort of transferring and sort of imprinting things that you could relate to personally. Um, and it helped me a lot because I was going through this um, time where I felt really alone in Los Angeles and going through this breakup. And it was like therapy for me. And um, really, get, ultimately, that's when I first had an understanding and 
and stronger respect for actors and acting. And I, I was able to see people work. Um, we had some great actors in that class. Uh, my teacher was a working actor. Um, and uh, yeah, people really worked hard and it made me work hard and, and do scenes and make things personal. And, um, you know, just having people better than you um, around you um, at anything, I think, is a great gift. And if you can muster <laughs> uh, uh, the courage to to go toe to toe and try to try to make stuff happen, and, um, and uh, well, I think that's a that's a great point. Not yeah, to yeah. interject, but that's a really important point. The, the courage one to let somebody be better than you in the same room in such a way that you can learn from them and then compete with them. Yeah. As well. It's very underrated to, I always get nervous when I do get the sense that I'm the smartest person in the room. <laughs> uh, man, if, if, if I'm the smartest person in the room, then we're in serious trouble. Like somebody needs to, <laughs> needs to pull the, right. you want to, you, you want to, you want to run <laughs> yeah. from that yeah. room, right? Like you're like, okay, it's not a safe room. Um, I, I don't mind being the second. Sure. <laughs> Smart. I just don't want to be, you know, and the, the real truth of it is, is that it's very flattering to be in that room. Yeah. That's the part that nobody mentions is that when you are the most talented or the m most notable or the smartest, even if it's your own opinion, that's a very flattering place to be. It's great for your ego. It, it, it helps you in these, in these nuanced ways, but if you keep finding yourself in that place over and over and over again, you have to go back to sort of the understanding that you're the average of the five people you're around most. And you have to start sort of evaluating that. So I, I thought that was key that, that you mentioned that I just wanted to highlight that for, for a second. Oh, so yeah. please continue. Sir. Totally. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was the first time I had been around like working actors, real actors in an intimate way, um, preparing and watching the process and watching their performances evolve, the nuances that they um, would find and um, really opened my eyes to that. I always respected actors and, and was obviously a fan of the medium and of, uh, of acting and actors and film and had always done stuff on my own, you know, with my friends, but that always felt like part of the process. It didn't feel like, well, I'm acting on camera and I'm emoting and doing this. I was just, I had to, because there was only two of us, you know, or <laughs> a few of us there. So I was going to be one of the guys who was just servicing the project, not, not thinking of it that way. The enjoyment I got of, uh, out of showing people short films and skits and things we made wasn't about them reacting to me being a goofball on camera. It was really that we'd made this and put it together. You know, in the early days, it was just lucky. You know, there was no editing. It was all in-camera edits, you know. You need an establishing shot. Right. You run outside and get it and then run back inside and continue the scene, you know? Um, and I didn't realize that an element of that was um, I enjoyed acting. I enjoyed, you know, how much I really did enjoy that part of it and being a part of that, you know, process. And uh, I, I, found it again in there. And yeah, so I didn't, I didn't have a lot of training. You know, I did that class. Um, uh, I, I'm certainly know I could benefit from it more. I think I was impressed by actors that were in those classes that, you know, one guy was on a, on a sitcom and, uh, uh, well, it was a, 
it was a, uh, it was a, um, soap opera, but, uh, he's making, you know, tons of money and, <laughs> and he's in, and he's working and he was in that class and he'd done the class before he came back through it. That made, made me respect him a lot. And people that did that because, you know, like people can get cocky and go, I don't need to, you know, and also sometimes it's not people's process. You know, I've got acting buddies who are really successful and they don't really, they don't go to, they've never been in class. They don't, um, they don't, they don't feel they benefit from it. You know, they, well, they've tried it. And it wasn't their vibe, you know? And, uh, Will Smith types. Sure. Maybe so. And like, and yeah, I mean, I'm close with Will, so yeah, he would tell you the same thing. Just kidding. Um, but yeah, it's like, uh, he, uh, and also I didn't, it was not a comfortable thing for me because I wasn't a theater kid. Um, I wasn't used to being, taking it seriously, being vulnerable in front of anyone. Um, so it was a, a growing experience, but yeah. Um, but, uh, the rest was just, man, just enjoying the process of making stuff with my friends, just really just, it's so fun, <laughs> you know? And I want to, I want to touch on that a little bit, actually, sure. Trav, about, about that, because most indie filmmakers, actors, creatives, et cetera, they dream of making a film or a show with their friends. And you actually pulled it off with Steal the King. Yeah. You co-created the series. It's a CMT series. It ran from 2016 to 2017, 2018 with Potsy. Uh, uh, and by the way, Potsy's new movie, Old Henry. Awesome. I've heard. I haven't uh, seen it. Heard it's great. Yes. I saw it at the film festival. It was great. Uh, Ponsarelli, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but you did it. You, you made this show with all your buddies. And you had the writing, the producing, and the acting roles on your shoulders. How did you, how did you balance all of those uh, without losing all your hair and your wits? Man, I, I don't honestly know. Um, I, through some, some grace, uh, uh, it was hard, man. It was really hard. And it, it was a challenge because it's like, you know, it, 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 on the one hand, you're getting this incredible opportunity. Um, and getting paid for the first time really in any kind of meaningful way, you know, it was nothing, uh, life for me, it was life changing, but it was, you know, it wasn't like that, the real sweet TV money you hear about. It was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to pay you for your time, sir. Um, but it was year round, you know, <laughs> any, any other, anything was forget about it. You're, you're doing this now a hundred percent of the time, you know, because, I, and I, I really had to fight for my credit to get an executive producer credit, to get my created by credit. Um, uh, why is that? Well, I don't really know um, completely why. Uh, I think that there was some, I, I like to attribute it to people being naive about that process in the early stages of selling the show because some of the people that I was collaborating with, um, I think misunderstood what it meant to be an executive producer on a project in television. And maybe we're equating it more to being in film. So people that had invested in our pilot um, wanted to be credited as executive producers, but that's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a indie, indie film thing, 
But in, you know, in mm-hmm. television, it's whoever writes the script, who, who, who creates the show and the content, the characters and the story, and writes the physical script, which is what I did. That, that's, that's, right. that's the person who's, who, who, can, who can vie for EP status, um, who can vie for created by status. Um, so there was, there was a little bit of a tug of war with uh, some of the early collaborators about who gets created by credit and all that stuff and some pretty shady stuff. Um, and so I think I was um, just between us um, uh, <laughs> misrepresented to the network in some ways early on as sort of a, oh, he's an actor and he kind of helped write some stuff when in fact I had, co- you know, had written the original script um, with Potsy and, and, and absolutely uh, was there every single step of the way um, from the very beginning. And I think that they'd maybe, and so I, I'm not completely sure, but it came down to this moment where um, it was a really stressful time, man, because, you know, when, and I think that a lot of people that are in this industry or that are listening to this or, or that, you know, a funky thing can happen when a project gets close to being sold, when, when money starts to come in as a factor, when um, people can, uh, their eyes can glaze over a little bit and they'll, they'll start trying to figure out how big a piece of pie they're going to get. And it can get kind of weird mm-hmm. and people, Absolutely. people's uh, darker natures can come out at times. And, um, and I, I, I try to forgive them for all that because I think they honestly just didn't really know a lot about the process. And ultimately though, there was a bit of a standoff at one point where I wasn't going to be extended an executive producer credit. Um, but you know, everybody else, you know, other people that I didn't even know were getting executive producer credits. Uh, you know, Potsy was getting executive. Producer. And I was like, <laughs> no, I, I, I have to have that because I knew from prior experience that if I didn't have that credit, then I wouldn't be at the table. And I would be, if, if something happened that I felt like didn't represent my integrity on, on the project or the project creatively, that I could be, you know, I could be uh, outnumbered and outvoted if I didn't have right. that credit. And that was the main thing. It wasn't, it wasn't a money thing. It didn't, I didn't get paid more for that uh, in this situation. I know that can happen sometimes, but that wasn't, there was no attachment to that. Um, but so <clears throat> the vice president of Viacom, of CMT, and another executive called me. And uh, they said... Um, man, we're really sorry to, to say uh, we can't give you an executive producer credit. We can give you a co-EP credit, but that's the best we can do. Um, and they couldn't say why. I was going, well, why is that? You know, can I understand how this is hard for me to, to swallow because I created right. the show and it's my script and there's all these other people that are EPs. And um, so it was kind of a shady thing, man. And, and I, I said, and they said, we just, unfortunately, we can't make the show with you as, as an EP. And, uh, so I had to call their bluff and uh, I had incredible support from my, my lawyers. Um, <laughs> funny thing, uh, the girl that I moved to Los Angeles with, who uh, we split up when I got there, really tough breakup, um, is married to my lawyer. And <laughs> that's how I know him. And I would see him you know, back, he's a, he was a, he's a musician as well. Fantastic guy, Bo Stapleton. And Philip Rosen, they were at Rosen Law Group, and uh, yeah, I know them. I know them. They oh, of did course. Uh, another version of, of you. Of course, yeah. yeah, amazing guys. Um, yep. You know, 
they were just angels during that process. I mean, um, they just encouraged me, said, don't pick up your phone. Don't listen to that. They don't know what they're talking about. And they were like, you know, do not let them tell you that they're not going to make the TV show over a credit. And don't believe them if they say that. But God, I was spooked, man. It was like my first big TV deal. And they're saying, we're not going to make the show if you say, insist on being an EP. And I had to right. go, yeah. well, gosh, guys, um, really sorry to hear that. And I wish things were differently. But unfortunately, I just can't, I can't do that. And um, God, I just, I really want to do this with you guys. And I sure hope that we can work on something again in the future. And they're going, gosh, golly gee, we sure do too. And we love you, man. And sorry it went this way. And we hang up the phone and I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? You know, <laughs> did this whole thing just fall through my fingers? And at this point, mind you, we'd been, we'd shot a pilot. We, uh, we'd been in development on this for like almost well, over a year, you know, we'd been, you know, doing all this process. So I had so much time and so much sweat in the game. And of course, and I, I was here in Nashville at my parents' house pacing around the backyard, barefoot, freaked out, yeah. couldn't yeah. sleep, felt like I had an ulcer. And around 9 a.m., my phone rings, and it's some assistant from L.A. And he's going, hey, is this Travis? Hey, I got some great news for you. Uh, they figured out the uh, credit thing. You're actually going to be an executive producer now. Congratulations. And I was just like, <laughs> you, you know. And so that, that was such a valuable lesson for me. And I, and I owe, owe a huge debt to, to Bo and, and Philip because they – really held my hand through that process and without them assuring me that this was a bluff um i don't know what i would have done i might have been like all right and that would have been a bad move because there were many instances along the process of the years following 26 episodes where i needed to know what was going on and i needed to be able to have a say and I needed to be taken seriously by Billy Ray Cyrus and the other executives and, and um, have my voice heard because this was my project and it was my entire life at the time. You know, like you're, you're, in, pre well, you're, you're in the writer's room first. We had eight, eight brilliant writers, amazing uh, people um, that we got to write with. Um, we get, you know, you get the writer's room together, you're writing, that rolls into pre-production. So you're still finishing scripts while you're setting up your production office. <clears throat> you're relocating to Nashville. First year we had a writer's room in LA. Um, second year was half LA, half Nashville, which was cool. Um, but yeah, and then, then you're in pre-production, then you're rolling into production, then you're in post-production. And I was involved in every step of the way because, you know, I had to be, I wanted to be too. It was my show, you know, I'm going to be there for the, mm -hmm. the last frame of color correction because I, I wanted to. Um, and I love the process. I love everything about it. Um, but as soon as post-production's over, I think we had like a couple of weeks and then we were in the writer's room for season two. And, wow. you know, it's just absolutely crazy. Um, you know, this, this, this job, this, uh, there's just so much, to, so many moving parts. And I somehow suckered myself into having a hand in every element of it. And, uh, I'm forever grateful, but it was, boy, it was tough. So it was a double-edged sword. You know, my, my personal life was non-existent um, mm -hmm. for that in a lot of ways. Um, and you're just tired all the time. And you're just trying to perform um, 
under this pressure. Um, and I just have such a respect for people that, that, uh, I mean, we're, and this is just this little show, you know, this little show in Nashville, um, with my friends, like a lot of these people I'd worked with for years and I got to hire a bunch of my buddies to come act on the show and bring people in. And then just, I, I, I'm just, uh, still so, uh, so amazed by some of the people we got to come be on the show and actors that we got to come, you know, uh, read. You just see somebody like at one point, um, Alan Ruck read for a role. Yeah. And, uh, so I'm looking at Cameron from Ferris Bueller saying dialogue that I wrote <laughs> to Cameron, like, yeah. this guy, you know, <laughs> and you know, he's on succession now. God, I wish we'd had him. I was going to say tonight succession. Comes oh man, back. I'm going to yeah. go watch it here in a minute. Um, it's like, and, um, but to see, and you just realize, like, man, everybody just wants to play. Everyone wants to work. You know, we had uh, Wayne Knight who played Newman on Seinfeld and was in Jurassic Park, yep. you know, one of my favorite childhood movies. Um, he came and was on our show on an episode that I wrote, and it was just like, this is insane. But you're just. Yeah, y'all's cameos on this show was, it was unbelievable and very fitting of a show like that where. You've got Billy Ray Cyrus and, you know, Nashville is as much of a character in the show as the characters themselves. It, yeah, I think it lends itself to cameos. I think some people still think just because of Billy Ray's sort of brand that maybe it's like a reality show or something. <laughs> because uh, <laughs> I, I get interviews or just people I talk to sometimes because um, I'm constantly being interviewed. Um <laughs> we'll say, yeah. So you know, growing, you know, doing reality TV for you. How did you? And I'm like, I've never done reality TV. Um, but uh, it, oh, it's boy. hard to see. You know, CMT. It was marketed. You know, we 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 when we when we went with CMT, they were like, this is a new network. We're rebranding everything. This is going to be scripted television. We're taking over this whole thing. It's going to be a whole new division of Viacom. They have this whole plan, and we thought, cool. And we got away with a lot. We got to be a lot grittier than anything I thought CMT would let us do. But at the same time, you know, you see the commercials like, Billy Ray Cyrus is up to it again. What's he going to do this week? You know, it's like, you do a stupid game on CMT. You know, it's like, that's not the brand. That's not our show. Um, that's not the tone right. of our show. You know, it was like uh, a cartoon <laughs> version of what. So, yeah, so... Uh, and then, and then of course the whole thing fell through. CMT bought, um, Nashville, they'd made Sun Records in Memphis and I think spent all the rest of their money on making pilots that didn't get bought by Viacom and it just fell through and, uh, all the executives that we had left. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing to do that for two years. Um, and what, uh, does it have a, does it have a comeback in it? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, I'm pretty sure, uh, pretty sure that when, uh, you know, we, we talked about it, you know, I talked to Billy Ray every now and then, um, he's just such a character, man. He's, uh, what a great guy to, to get to, to be around sometimes. He's just, um, truly one of a kind kind of person, uh, who just, yeah, he doesn't get an, as, enough credit for old town road. Man, he, he, he is, you know, he's, he's just half in the spirit world, man. The guy, he listens yeah. to signs. He's always going, when you said that just then, that reminded me that blah, 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 and he connects things like that. He's just has this. And 
And, you know, you look at his career and you go, my God, you had this, you know, one hit, quote, one hit wonder, achy, breaky heart, huge smash hit, broke all the records, crazy, huge song and out of the blue, you know, and then years later, Old Town Road's the most certified song of all time. It stayed, of all time. it stayed on number one on the charts longer than any other single. I mean, it is crazy. Um, and that whole story yeah. about how the Lonzax yeah. got a hold of them and that whole thing too is just absolutely amazing. There you go. We did an episode with Billy Ray on our podcast uh, last season and said it straight with said it straight with Midland on Spotify, season one. Um, there's a great episode with Billy Ray on that that he talks about that whole journey and and he's just he's he's great. And I loved acting. Hope this with audience him. will go listen to that for sure. Oh, I hope so. Um, but yeah, man, uh, playing his buddy getting to do like a an accent that i probably slip into naturally after a couple <laughs> drinks um or certainly if i get on the phone with somebody from nashville that has a southern twang it comes out but just kind of getting to fall into that drawl and uh wear cowboy boots and be a redneck conspiracy theorist was one of the greatest joys of my life i mean playing walt on silver king is just like i don't know how i got so lucky man it was so cool and I'm so into that stuff anyway. I love reading about UFOs and Bigfoot and anything that's, uh, you know, unsolved or paranormal. Um, and so I got to make fun of myself for two years with a group of people uh, in the Paranormal Men's Society, uh, PMS. I don't think they thought that through <laughs> before they made the, uh, the patches, but, uh, you know. Um, it seems to be a theme in your life, though. I mean, you've, you're in the right place at the right time. You're able to deploy your lived experience and lived and learned lessons in the most important moments and when it counts. And because of that, you've been rewarded over and over and over again. I think you're going to get rewarded some more coming up here. You have East Side Story. You've got Mirror Rim. You've got uh, Morse Code, which you're working on kind of quiet project that you're working on in the background. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to, I think you're going to strike gold again, as uh, L. Rick Hahn would say, <laughs> uh, what, uh, <laughs> what, what are, what are two pieces of advice that you've received in your career? The two best pieces I should say that you've received in your career so far and who did they come from? When I, when I was first around somebody that I thought was truly the pinnacle of success. And I still think that is George Clooney, right? Um, I just think he's mm -hmm. had such an incredible career. He's a wonderful person to be around. I've never heard anybody speaking no word around about him. And I ha have had uh, the opportunity to work on two movies with him. And he was always so kind to me. And that was kind of his, his, his MO. He would find the lowest person on the set. Here I am, the craft service intern. And he was so good to me and uh, just cool. And, uh, and I try to pick his brain every now and then. And, um, um, you know, he'd tell me stories about like, going back to Kentucky and uh, being around his buddies at their favorite dive bar, watching the game, having a beer. And they'd be like, you know, you're really slumming it up with us, aren't you, George? And he was like, if I could only express to them that this is absolutely the, the, the thing I want to be doing more than anything else. This is not, uh, I'm not lowering myself. This is absolutely who I want to be around, what I want to be doing and not judged and not looked at as some kind of 
highfalutin, whatever. And um, he he showed that to us kids on the set a few times. I knew this guy who was his stand-in who uh, looked nothing like George Clooney. Um, not a bad-looking guy <laughs> or anything, but just didn't look anything like him. And uh, he was just around the same height and he had dark hair. And uh, so, and he was just loving it. You know, he, we were all, you know, 19 and he, uh, so he was signing autographs and stuff, you know, um, well, we're in this, we're in this bar. It was a crew party for somebody's birthday on the crew. And so he kind of bought out a bar and let us all hang out there. And we're kind of like hiding our beers, you know, taking a sip every now and then. And, um, <laughs> George is there and we're talking to him and, uh, you know, some, some locals had brought friends. Most of it was crew, but there's a few people there we didn't know. And uh, my friend says, so George, what's it like to know you could take any girl in this bar home with you tonight? And I was like, oh, <laughs> I just felt the air suck out of the room. I was like, why'd you say that? We we're having a great conversation. Oh, what a, oh God, why'd you say that? And um, George gets this grin on his face and he says, uh, well, check this out. And he saunters over to the bar and there's this girl there that we didn't know who like, didn't work on the movie and you know bless her heart she was trying pretty hard she had her boobs all pushed up and lots of makeup on just he's walking right towards her, making a beeline for her and i was like what's he about to do like this is weird you know and uh he uh he walked right towards that girl and then turned the last second and talked to this old lady for like an hour <laughs> <laughs> and uh, didn't even look back at us. And I saw that register on my friend's face. <laughs> you know, his like sort of smile, like, whoa, he's going to go talk to that girl. Uh, and uh, and then just the confusion on his face. And I was like, what a cool way to teach a lesson to somebody who is impressionable, yeah. who needs to know how to be a gentleman and how that's not important and how you should never use fame or power in, in that way. Um, it's just a really, uh, a really ugly thing that has, so that made a big impression on me is really how he treated us. Um, and, uh, that was just, uh, things like that. Somebody that, that, that's that successful, um, having integrity. And, uh, I hope that, uh, that I've lived that way. I think that <clears throat> I try to, you know, um, I try to keep my word you know, when I can and, and, and be, and be accountable. And, uh, you know, if I say I'm gonna do something, I try to do it and, 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 uh, and do the best I can to, uh, to be honest about, about, uh, about things, because this is a long yeah. game, man. This is like, you can't, you, you gotta, you gotta like, um, you gotta keep it, uh, keep it straight. And I think more so even now these days, like, um, people that, that do, that abuse their power, that, that are dishonest, that do things that, um, aren't cool to people <laughs> that, that behave badly <laughs> on sets that are, you know, that's, that's not being put up with anymore. You know, there's, the world is smaller and, you know, you can get away with it for a while. Um, but it's so much easier to not, if you don't, if you don't, you know, BS people, then you don't have to worry about something coming back around and, you know, 
there's just, there's so many people that you work with on all these projects, you know, over the years, cruiser can be big and small and, you know, you're going to encounter people again, you know? And, yep. uh, if you did them wrong or said something bad about them, then, um, you're going to see them again, you know? And, uh, you know, there's always that, that sort of talk about like, um, uh, you know, you, it's not enough to succeed. You have to watch your best friends fail. <laughs> um, I don't mm. know if it's quite that dark, but you know, you can, you can have a quote unquote overnight success in this industry when you've been hustling for 20 years. Um, nobody's heard of you. And then on the next day you're, um, you know, you're on Jimmy Kimmel <laughs> and you're talking right. about this crazy thing you have to do. That happens all the time in this industry. And, um, um, it can create a lot of disparity between, you know, the people that you came up with who may deserve it more. Um, I mean, I, I've met so many incredibly talented people who absolutely um, deserve every opportunity I've ever been given and just haven't gotten it yet. And you have to have a lot of uh, patience and, you know, I'm, I'm not anywhere near where I want to be in my career. I'm 42 years old. You know, I had a, a TV show I'm grateful for, but if the, I, I, I pray that that's not the, uh, the high watermark for me. You know, I, I've always wanted to direct movies since I was a kid. That's still my dream. Um, trying to make it happen. And, uh, but I also can acknowledge that there's people that I know that would kill for the opportunity to have a, a television show on CMT starring Billy Ray Cyrus, you know? Um, and I'm of course grateful for that right. too, but you know, you can't measure your success against anyone else's um, or you'll just, I mean, it's hard not to, but uh, I try not to do that because it is, uh, that's, uh, that's just a, a painful thing to put, put, put yourself through because uh, it takes the enjoyment out of it, you know, to, yeah, absolutely. The yeah. doing of it should be enjoyable no matter what it is. And if you're, if you're sitting around going, sure wish I was doing that, then you're not going to look at what you're doing now. And, uh, right. And, and the point you made about it being a long game, it's, we have a series that we do that we just concluded. We did 52 episodes. These are like micro episodes, Travis, oh, cool. where each one's like two minutes long. It's called the film investment series. And it just kind of goes through our experience investing in independent film at, at the, on the ground floor. And, one of the things we talk about is this principle of long games with long-term players. So long-term games with long-term players is a big piece of advice we give and we, we repeat over and over and over again. And that's just a big part of it. You basically want to create relationships where you can keep playing the same games over and over with incredibly talented people. And a big part of that is making sure you don't destroy relationships on set by being uh, an ass. Right. Um, what, what are the, biggest creative and business mistakes you see newcomers making? Hmm. Um, I think it is, um, pretending that you know more than you do. Maybe <laughs> like, like, uh, I see people, mm -hmm. um, feeling like they need to posture, um, and act like they, got it all figured out already. And if you've been doing this for a while, you just see right through that immediately. And it's not a good look. 
Um, I think, I think a lot of those people learn later on. It's okay to admit you don't know something. It's okay to keep learning. It's okay to give credit to your peers. Um, you know, trying to, uh, shine a light on yourself by using, you know, um, using other people, you know, this is a very collaborative process and anything you do, you know, anyone will tell you, you know, it's like, you know, anybody does this knows it's just, there's a million moving parts and whether, you know, where you are in the process, um, you get a lot of help. And I, I see people doing that when they first start out, they feel like they need to get, get ahead quickly. And so they don't give credit to the people that help them. They don't like acknowledge the collaboration. And I think mm, that's a big mistake yeah. because, um, to me, it's a better look to go, look at all these fantastic people that I convinced to work on my project with me, that I collaborate with, that I enjoy spending time with and working with, that I admire, and they're working with me. And I think that's a better look to be like, I did all this stuff. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I did it all myself, you know. And um, I think that, that, that just kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's just not, not a good way to be. And, uh, you know, I hear, you hear about people like paying somebody off that wrote their movie and then taking their name off of it, you know, mm. and, and putting their name on instead. And, uh, it happens a lot. And I know this happened on higher levels, but you know, when, you know, if it's a big studio film and a director wants to come on and the, they negotiate and go, well, it's going to say written and directed by this big director. And even though the, the script was acquired by these other writers and they have to get paid as like shadow writers and stuff, that's all kind of unfortunate to me, the whole ghostwriter thing. I think that mm -hmm. there shouldn't be any harm to being like, you know, written by so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, directed by so-and-so. It's not going to, no one, no one cares. It's, there's a lot of ego and pride that goes with that. But I think uh, that's right. a shame especially when you're starting out to not acknowledge the people that help you do it. And that's just not a solid foundation to build your career on. And, uh, I've, I've seen people that are new, uh, do that. And man, it, it makes it, uh, you know, people are really polite in the film industry. Everyone's nice to your face because especially if you've been doing it for a while, you know, it's, they're, you're going to see them again probably. And, you know, right. but if they know that, you didn't give them credit. You were manipulating things behind the scene or whatever. They're not going to work with you and they're not going to actively try to help you in your career anymore. And, uh, so I try to live by those. Principles. Yeah. I think that was, it's true. I think if I had to critique Bonza early on, it's that we were so eager to get into the film business and get our name out there that we were so nice in the negotiation process and really everything up into the point in which it gets decided who's making what and when and how much everybody's super nice <laughs> everybody's super cool right and then in that process that's when the real personalities come out that's when and you don't realize that okay if you got good terms and the other producer didn't get as good of terms and maybe you're not even aware of that all of a sudden they start acting crazy on set and the, the, everything was nice. Everything was wonderful. And now someone's acting different because of something that happened during the contracting process. You're not aware. Right. Of. Or you have to fire some crew 
or you have to like all these things that happen around the actual money giving and making part of the business. That's where all the, the real truth happens. Everything else is just industry politics stuff to me. Oh yeah. I mean, and, yeah. and we had to learn to get a, a lot tougher and ask a lot more questions at that point in the process. Right. And you know, uh, yeah, I've learned those same lessons the hard way at times. It's the, the thing too is, you know, you can always be nice. Just tell them what you want and don't fold, you know, be reasonable, but you know, you can always be a nice guy, but know your value. Right. And, um, you know, that's, that's something I think that, you know, everyone struggles with at times, but know your value, know, know, know what you, what you have to offer. And, um, and uh stand by it i mean it's hard man you know i'm i'm a sensitive guy uh you know i'm a creative person um and you know uh it's uh hard not to take things personally sometimes um mm -hmm. you know uh read this great book called the four agreements and um i think it actually works oh, yeah. absolutely really well in the film industry um these principles I think apply in life in general, but, um, you know, I, I got a lot of philosophy from my parents. Um, we, uh, they're, 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 uh, followers, uh, you know, of all kinds of different, uh, spiritual practices. Um, one is they're, they're your follower of, uh, Yogananda, right? right? Yogananda, uh, self-realization fellowship, um, uh, love yep. him. He's an incredible resource. And, um, uh, one of the biggest assets for understanding Yogananda's contribution to yoga in, in, in the, in the West is, uh, just meditation, learning about meditation. And I can't say I have a great practice, <laughs> uh, but I, I try and I learned how to meditate as a kid and my parents meditate. And, um, he's a super valuable resource for just the, the, the basic principles of meditation. Um, it's not really a religion. It's sort of like, you know, um, I still, uh, um, you know, we still would read about Christianity, learn about Jesus growing up and all that. Um, Christianity is a complicated thing in the South. Um, but, uh, I generally, uh, mm -hmm. like what Jesus had to say, um, what Christians had to say, not always mu as much. <laughs> um, but yeah, learning meditation and stuff, but also kind of, we, we, you know, we lean into other, I, mean, I would be exposed to things like Eckhart Tolle and, and, uh, and um, all this stuff was really helpful to me, especially with the pressures of making my first show and, and, and all the responsibilities and uh, kind of being pulled in all these different directions, kind of having that as a grounding force, almost out of desperation, just, just uh, having, forcing myself to meditate um, just to clear my mind a little bit. And you can kind of step back from your thoughts a little bit and go like, whoa, there's a lot going on there. And you go, okay. I'm observing right. it now, not in the middle of it. And if you can get out of your, your crazy uh, lizard brain for a minute and just, and kind of just notice your thoughts. I know it sounds kind of strange, but you know what I mean? Um, you kind of step back and go, all right, there's a lot going on there, dude. You know, I, I can't, you know, right, right. you know, I think a lot of us creative people that, that write and, um, have stuff ticking around up there all the time. Um, it's good to sometimes, you know, you know, I'll, I'll be working on a project for a long time and then I not even realize I'm thinking about it and I'll say something out loud, like a crazy person. It's like, it's just like <laughs> and that's why I wouldn't have done it that way. You know, whatever. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, and then you go, oh, that was just the tail end of a thought 
I wasn't even aware of that now has been vocalized. And I'm not really that far removed from the, the person on the bus who's yelling obscenities, <laughs> but, uh, but to be able to go, Oh, that's happening. And I can step back from it and look at it for a minute and go, okay. Uh, without trying to control it or judge it, just be like, all right, yeah, a lot going on. Um, but I, I stepped out of it for a minute. If you can do that a little bit. I think it's really helpful. And yeah, those four agreements, like always be immaculate with your word, like just tell the truth. Um, don't take things personally. Don't assume anything. And always do your best. And, uh, you know, easier said than done. You know, uh, it's hard to be honest all the time, <laughs> you know, because sometimes you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. And sometimes you don't want to, um, there's, there's times when you're like, if I tell them this truth, but it's always the right thing to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I'm curious if there's any advice you have for someone that wants to start a meditation practice to maybe enhance their creativity or clarity. Um, I would say uh, start. Don't first of all, don't be precious about it. There's so much pomp and circumstance about meditation. Like if you don't do it exactly the right way or the way everyone says to do it, that that it's not, you're not going to achieve results. And I, I'd say. Put that aside. This is not a competition, you know, for who can bend the most and, and, and stay, stay so the longest. And, and it, it's a, that's something that I think that I've suffered from, like trying to do it exactly the perfect way. Um, but try stuff. Try stuff out and, and, and uh, experiment and what makes you comfortable. You know, something that's cool about Yogananda is when he came here, you know, he comes from India, 1920. And we're all a bunch of knuckleheads who don't know anything about yoga. Um, that was not anything right. we knew. So he adapted a lot of the meditation techniques to Western society where you could sit in a chair and sit upright and, um, and do breathing techniques and things like that where you're not in lotus, you know, full lotus posture on the floor in Indian style, which is where the practice he came from because he knew that would be a deterrent to getting people started. And, um, so there's a lot of adaptability that he brought to the West back then. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of his early techniques are just really simple. Um, and it's all free. You know, it's like it's not a religion or a cult or anything. It's like just you can go to any place where there's a, uh, there's a beautiful place in L.A. I would go out to sometimes out in the Pacific Palisades. It's, a, uh, it's like a man-made pond. And, uh, there's a meditation center there and it's a church of all, you know, you walk in and, and every world religion is represented by a big plaque and it's just open to the public. And, um, like Elvis used to go there and like George Harrison would hang out there. And, um, um it's just a, a cool thing. And that's what I really like about, about a self-realization fellowship is that it's not a religion. They don't advertise, they don't re uh, recruit people. You don't pay dues. Um, there's just meditation techniques and lessons you can get and you get them in the mail and uh it's all kind of you know real simple stuff there's not like long mantras or complicated um super complicated techniques they get more advanced but um yeah that's a long long-winded explanation and i also do not want it to be uh regarded as any authority on this but that my personal thought is um don't take it all too seriously it's really meant to be something to help you relax and to help you have a deeper inner life and know yourself better um 
and that should not be a chore or a, uh, or a like, you know, it should be fun. You should make it interesting. However you can, whatever it is that gets you to sit still for five minutes <laughs> and then maybe 10 minutes. And then eventually, um, you might start enjoying yourself in that space long enough to really sit there for a long time. And, um, there's no end to it, man. It's, it's, you can, you can, <laughs> there's no, it's infinite. You know, it's like, you, you're never going to, you're never going to uh, stop improving. You know, it's like anything in martial arts or becoming a painter or, or anything that we do. Um, you're always trying to get better at it. That's what's cool about it. And what's and also what's daunting about it. So just start, like start, start trying some stuff um, and get on the path. Cause you're never going to, you know, I mean, you know, beyond uh, achieving full enlightenment in this lifetime or whatever. Hey, go for it. Maybe you will, but um, you got to start. And uh, uh, I need to get back to it myself. I I started, I got to a place where I could go for 30 minutes or about 45 minutes, maybe. Yeah. And then my group that I was doing it with started dwindling. Like we started with 12 people then it got down to eight and then it was six and then it was two. And it was like, once it got down to just me and the the guy who was leading it, I think it just sort of fell sure, off. Sure. And I need to find another group or just have the discipline to do it on my own. But during the time that I was doing it every single you know, day or every other day, it was incredibly powerful. And I was able to create life design and have some, some thoughts that I use to this day in mentorships that I, that I'm a part yeah. of and leadership that I'm a part yeah. of. And I really do need to get back to it. Um, you know, uh, speaking of uh, this, this is a funny thing that I, that I think is pretty fascinating about, about meditation, about the discipline of meditating. Um, cause I feel like everybody feels this way. Ah, I need to get back to that. I, I don't do it. You know, even people that, and then you go, how much do you have? Yeah, I'm, I'm only, uh, I only do two hours a day. I'm like, God, you know, like there's there, everybody, everybody yeah, feels that. Like. But the amount. funny thing is, is like, um, that I just marvel at, uh, is that when I, when I sort of make a plan, like I'm going to meditate today, I'm going to take five minutes. I'm going to find a, find a, find a, a quiet minute and do five minutes of meditation today. Um, this sort of hilarious thing that happens where you're like, okay, I, I'm going to do that for sure, but I need to take care of this first. And I need to take care of that. I will find things that I wouldn't wish on my enemy to have to do to avoid sitting with myself for five minutes. I'll like dig up that my taxes, <laughs> you know, before I'll sit down for five minutes. And that to me is a really profound thing because it's, it's a force. I, I, I feel it. And I, I've had this conversation with lots of people that, that try meditation. It's like, that is a, uh, a, a compelling and very real kind of force, whether it's like completely self-imposed or, you know, <laughs> or is if it, it actually is some kind of a vibratory resistance in the, in the universe of the atmosphere that's like, don't not, nah, you want to keep your ego. You don't want to dissolve any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever mm-hmm. it is, it's just kind of hilarious. Like the links I'll go to, to avoid sitting down for five minutes <laughs> in, with, in quiet. <laughs> um, so that, that in that regard, it is helpful to have a group, but, but um, yeah, that, that idea that there is this force convincing you not to do it only to me speaks to how powerful it actually must be for us to actually do that and, and grow our, our, our inner space, self-awareness. Um, the, the fact that there is this preventative pull that exists 
Yeah. It just makes me go, right. man, there's some Jedi stuff going on then, isn't it? Like, you know, there, yeah. there's some yeah. opposing yeah. force that I felt in my life many times. Um, and that, and the same thing goes for if you're, if you're a writer, if you're starting thinking about starting a project, all that fear and doubt and stuff, that is all malarkey. That is stuff that is like, if, if it's strong, then it's worth doing it. And I try to tell myself the same thing. If I'm trying to, to write a project and go, man, I don't know if, how good this is. I, why even start it or whatever crazy stories you tell yourself. Um, it may never go away, but I like to look at that and try to smile in the face that I go, I see you trying to keep me from, <laughs> from doing this thing. Um, right. Cause, cause it's going to benefit me if I do it, even if it doesn't turn into something, it's all going to benefit me. And so I'm going to, I'm going to do it in spite to spite you weird, weird, dark force, <laughs> you know, that's, that's an exceptional piece of advice and an exceptional sort of thought nugget that we should highlight because I, I really haven't had, we we're now the, over a hundred episodes of, or at least a hundred interviews deep. And I haven't heard anybody put it that way before where the thing that you're trying to resist must have force and power and good in it because you are trying to resist it. Yeah. Like, like you, you, if you find that you're resisting doing a thing, that's your signal. That's your bat signal to go full speed toward it and suck up on your excuses and your ego and everything else. Yeah. Cause it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. This thing we've picked to do. It's a tough, it's a tough, tough thing. I try to give myself yeah. an out and go, man, maybe you can just, you know, go record more music or, or, uh, or, like, you know, I, I love painting. I, I, I do a thing where I paint, uh, paint things with coffee. I mean, it's a, uh, yeah, you have coffee paintings. I was <laughs> going to ask you, are you going to sell any of those coffee paintings? Uh, you yeah, you can. Uh, I got a, a little Instagram account that I need to update, but it's like uh, coffee paintings by TN, I think is what it is. Um, mm-hmm. And I have a, a Facebook page. But yeah, there's stuff like that. You go, oh, but I'm just always drawn back, man. This, this to me is such a, uh, such a, a fantastic, like kind of, uh, um, my neighbor just drove by and went, what up? Um, <laughs> uh, that was the honk you heard earlier. Yeah. I live yeah. over here in Inglewood and I just, uh, I, I love this neighborhood. People, people still walk around and wave at you and stuff. And I, I, I so for the audience, Inglewood yeah. is a, is a community in East Nashville where, I would say the lion's share of the artists and foodies and poets and filmmakers and writers all live. So sorry, uh, Trev, go ahead. Yeah, I got, I got, uh, you know, in this market, I got really lucky. I got this house in <laughs> July and, um, you know, um, for all of the, 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 the struggle and, 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 uh, I don't know. That makes me sound ungrateful. And I don't mean to sound that way at all. I, I really am so grateful for having that television show, but also it was one of the hardest times of my life. And, uh, then you go, well, uh, you know, we, we had this crazy stuff happen, you know, where, where, um, we were, we found out we were underpaid for, um, for our being producers on the show and mm. the writer's guild, uh, was amazing. Uh, you know, I've been in the screen actors guild, uh, now for, 
you know, I don't know, 20 something years. And then, then in the writer's guild, um, I joined when we got the show. I was the first, I was allowed to join the guild then. And, uh, you know, guilds don't always have a great reputation for like doing a lot for us. Um, you know, um, and the writer's guild came through and they, I was part of a big class action lawsuit. They sued, um, sued Viacom and, uh, got us awarded. Yeah. A big, uh, big settlement, um, that I got a, a tiny piece of and had that not happened, had the guild not uncovered that they were underpaying us. Basically the guild was like, you got to pay. If you have a writer in the writer's guild working on your show for months, um, in, in post-production and you're not paying them any kind of weekly or anything, um, you got to at least pay them a, uh, you know, a weekly writer's fee, even if it's a small one. And, uh, Absolutely. so we got the settlement and that's the only way I was able to, uh, ever consider, I mean, anyone hearing this, who's a creator and in creative industry, um, knows how sporadic your income is and how hard it is to get a loan, um, uh, build credit, all those kind of things that, uh, our friends with the straight jobs, um, can benefit from, um, also, I'm just terrible with that stuff. You know, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not, you know, as a lot of my friends that are, are creative people and I'm not making excuses. There's also creative people who are very organized and I um, stand in awe of those people. But yeah, uh, without that settlement coming through, there's no way I would have been able to uh, consider getting a loan, getting a house. And um, that's another thing I think to, uh, to really try to consider is when you're, when you start, you know, making money in this industry, ask questions and get help because we're not raised at least not where I went to school. And I think it's an American um, failing is we're not raised to have financial stability or understand taxes and how to uh, build credit and how to like, you know, I mean, I certainly didn't learn that in high school and then I didn't go to business school after, you know, I was in film school right. and they certainly weren't talking about tax taxes there. So if I could go back, I would really have tried to educate myself. Um, and I'm still, it's still a process, you know? Um, but I, I formed an LLC at the beginning of, um, of still the King and I maintain that. And, um, you know, I, I'm really glad I did. I think it helps, um, separate me and my, and my business from personal liability um, and, you know, I'm able to, uh, be viewed as a corporation. And when money comes into that in ways, um, then it helped, it helped me get a loan. Um, cause I could show income from this business. Um, and it wasn't just Trav getting piecemeal chunks of cash here and there from whatever <laughs> scrappy thing I was able to pull off that month, you know? Right. It's such a valuable lesson. I really have a problem with high schools not teaching money and not teaching entrepreneurship. Yeah. I think those two things. And I have a, I, and I, we should find a way to make sure that film schools across the country are teaching show business, not just show. Yeah. There has to be a way to make these creatives that go through these schools smart about contracts, rights, taxes, everything you just mentioned, it's critical. And you wouldn't hear some of these horror stories, I think, 
if you had that education as a foundation. And the fact that it's missing and it's persistent and it's been missing so long, Trav, it almost feels like intentional. Yeah. And that's that's the worst, you know, feeling of of all. Oh man, I mean, geez, uh, it, it, they're they're smart if that's the case because they sure got me good, man. <laughs> when I, you know, whenever <laughs> it's like you, you got it because you're not um, a lot of times something else that's that. You know, if you form an LLC, then you have to make quarterly payments or you have to put that money away. And basically you have to go, you know, God, you know, I got a buddy, uh, an actor who, who, uh, you know, he made his, he got his first million dollar offer on a movie. Right. And I was like, that's incredible. Oh my God, that's amazing. And he goes, well, you know, I'm only going to see 375 or so thousand dollars of that will be my money because when you get to those levels, you got a business manager. Oftentimes they're going to take about 5%. You've got a lawyer. If you're under a contract, they got a 5% deal. You've got a manager. They're going to take 10%. You got an agent. They're going to take 10%. So that's 30 off the top right away gone. And then the government is going to take, you know, 30, 35. And then there, there you are. And, uh, yeah. that's just crazy. Uh, that, that really opened my eyes. Um, when he told me that, like, wow, it's really, but, and then beyond that, you know, you might get that money and it might look like you have that money, but you got to put away, you got to just pretend it doesn't, it's not there and, and Absolutely. put away 30, 35%. Um, cause if you have an LLC too, they don't, you're not necessarily getting, um, what is it? 1099 or, or, or uh, uh, whatever the form is where you put your dependents right. on there. Um, oftentimes that money comes to you and it's, it's on you to, uh, you know, to, to make your own deductions and to, um, you know, uh, calculate. Right. And then there comes another fee where you have to get a good CPA cause you don't know how to make those deductions. hundred oh, percent. And, but the, but the trick, the, the trick is, is that you'll get the 35 or 30 to 35% from taxes. You'll get that money. So you'll actually see about 600,000, but you know, that, that, that there's a giant chunk of that that has to go out in taxes. And so if you spend it, you're screwed. Uh-huh. And that's where the discipline comes in. It's like, do you have the discipline to ignore 30 to 35% of your money that's in an account somewhere? Yeah. And did you get the business education to understand that money sitting in a bank is purposeless and to the benefit of the bank and that you should put your money in a diversified portfolio of investments where your money grows over time since it's just going to sit there anyway. But I never, uh, I you know, never was whispered to me until I was, you know, until I ever made any amount of money. And, and yeah, I took my money out of my bank account and put it in a stock exchange and, you know, uh, did really well. And it's incredible that I didn't know that for so long, <laughs> Exactly. you know, like yeah. I just would have, you know, I never had a big balance. I was always broke in LA. God, I can't, I don't know how, how anyone does it. I don't know how I did it for so long. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I would just make enough money to pay rent and then figure out another way to pay rent again the next month, you know. Then, uh, you know, when, when I had like, at one point I had like, you know, 10 or $15,000 because I'd just done a big commercial and I was like, man, I don't have to work again. You know, <laughs> I thought that was incredible. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it, uh, and I wish that I had had somebody be like, Hey, all you got to do is open up an E-Trade account or whatever, or Robin hood or whatever, and just put your money. It's so easy to do. 
and we all can do it on our yeah. phones now. And as long as you're not trying to become kind of hotshot trader without any knowledge, you just put it in there and you leave it alone. And, yep. and, uh, there's a great, there's a great, uh, I don't know if it's a cliche yet, but a credo, if you will, in stock trading, which is if you don't know what the market's going to do, do nothing. hundred percent. And that just says, Hey, you're going to take a massive hit during a recession. Don't do anything. Chill out. Market comes back because ultimately when you're really, really long and you're a value investor and you're long on it, what you're really betting on is America. You're saying, I think America is still going to be here in 30 years. So I'm just going to leave my money alone or contribute even more to it in a, in a recession and buy down. That's all you're saying. And so if you're nervous about America succeeding or failing, that might be when you want to pull out of certain markets and, and go into other things. But um, yeah, it's, it's a great lesson. And, and Trav, I think this is a wonderful place for us to maybe conclude part one. I, I think it would be awesome to have you on for another conversation oh, man. I'll, I'll, around uh, two, if you will. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll talk as long as you'll let me, man. I, 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 uh, I hope that in any way, uh, anything that we've talked about could help anybody that, that, that hears this because, uh, I just, uh, I could not have possibly gotten by without the encouragement of people and people reminding me that, uh, this is supposed to be fun. And this is supposed to be a good experience and uh, having these conversations with uh, somebody who's been gracious enough to, to dig through my, uh, my history and uh, remind me of these things. It's always a benefit to me as well. So I really appreciate the opportunity to go down memory lane and remind myself uh, <laughs> it's just worth doing and I'm, I'm not a total failure and that uh, I, have, I, have, uh, I have some things to look forward to. So I really appreciate it, man. Anytime, and quite the contrary, you have so much to give everyone uh, in this audience and everyone you run into, helping them sort of skip over mistakes that, that you've made in the past, helping them understand successes you've had in the past. It's, it's invaluable. So uh, tell everybody where they can find you on social media, on the Internet, or maybe even see some of your work. Um, okay, I've got a website. It's uh, littlebrotherfilms.com um, and various stages of uh non-update update uh but I, I try to host my projects there um and 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 talk about what i'm doing when i can um and then i've got um yeah my instagram is uh, travis history at travis history um i'm trying to get better about posting i'm not a big social media guy but when we uh we're about to start doing some more sketch comedy stuff so i'll look forward to putting some of that stuff up there and, uh, yeah, all the other stuff, Facebook, I'm easy to find. Um, and, uh, but yeah, the website's probably the best place to, to see stuff or just come say hi in Inglewood. Let's go get a coffee people. <laughs> I, I love that. That sounds like a good idea for me and you as well. Uh, can't wait to do that soon. There's so many great spots and, for those listening, if you want to dig in to the world of Travis Nicholson, there's lots of places to go beyond that. He was a producer on a short film called The Arm, with Brie Larson was involved, uh, did a feature film called Super Zeros that won the Audience Award at the National Film Festival, produced on a film called Listening. Obviously, the show Still the King 
his video that he co-directed for Dirk Bentley, Gone, has been nominated for Video of the Year. And the aforementioned or aforementioned documentary, Soul of the Samurai, you can go find and watch as well on the internet, on streaming services. And so we'll end on this, Travis, as someone who has met Fidel Castro <laughs> and, and has lived through the world the last two years, it seems like you've posted more uh, politically uh, than you ever have. Yeah. If you could get any political message, any personal message, any inspirational message out to the entire world, what would that message be? Oh man, I think um, there is a worse than any pandemic we have is a empathy deficit in this country. And I got it. We all have it. And I think that that is the greatest value asset as human beings we can offer to each other in a society. And uh, I'm guilty of it. I've certainly gotten fired up at people that I uh, didn't agree with politically and uh, sure of embarrassed myself um, by trying to convince somebody of something. And I think just reminding yourself that that's a person who believes in what they're saying, whether it's completely sideways and obtuse in your mind and wrong, they have heart and feelings and, and family and hurts and, tragedies and challenges just like you do and the more we can extend empathy to each other and remind ourselves that we're all people just trying to figure it out and not nobody's great at it um that will benefit all of us and uh I hopefully will help us start to heal as a country and uh remind yourself that we're all just human beings trying to trying to live on this planet together until we uh, populate Mars. It's kind of the only, only game in town. So let's try to get along better. <laughs> Trav, well said. Well said. Thank you, brother, for the time. And I wish you the best of luck with everything you have going on. I can't wait to see the output of all this great work and energy and creativity you're putting into the world and into your own life and into others' lives. And like I said before, Let's get that coffee in Inglewood. Sounds great, brother. Thanks for having me. Anytime, man. You Take too. care. Later. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice, by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, 
If you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.